What's happening? It's great to be able to come and bring God's Word to you today. Uh, in fact, we're starting a new series, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. It's called Gentle and Lowly, um, based out of a book of the same title written by a bloke uh, in America called Dane Ortland. Uh, and, the, and the book that he writes essentially is uh, him trying to show us really the heart of Christ. What, what is Jesus like? What's he like towards us? In fact, one of the strap lines talks about heart Christ towards sinners and sufferers. And so we're going to be looking at this through June and July. Uh, as a real opportunity for us to, again to come to some of the, the kind of foundations, the principles of who Jesus is, of his heart towards us. And I'm hoping that we're all going to find it encouraging, enriching, uh, and a real just time of, of blessing for us. And so uh, we're going to kick that series off today. Uh, we're actually uh, recommending the book to you. Uh, I've read it. It's a fantastic book. Uh, you can pick that up on, on Amazon or online somewhere. Uh, and so it's called Gentle and Lowly. And, and so recommend you pick that up. But also to say it's not essential to have it in order to engage with the series that we're doing as a church. We're not going to be kind of preaching directly out of the book, so to speak. Uh, we're going to be drawing out some of the scriptures and some of the themes that come out of the book and preaching that. Uh, but it's definitely recommended to, to, to get a hold of it and read it purely because it will bless you and strengthen you in your own faith, kind of as you take that as a devotional. So uh, we're going to be kicking it off today. And, and also, just to let you know, we're not going to be necessarily going through the book chronologically. Um, you, you'll kind of see that we're kind of going a bit here and a bit there. And so we're not going to be following it chapter by chapter, uh, but it'll be a little bit piecemeal. Um, and, but you'll kind of get where we're going. And so today I'm going to be kicking off uh, with uh, preaching out of Hebrews 4. And so if you, you can turn there in your Bible. And we're going to be looking at the topic of, of the sympathetic high priest. If, if you like titles, that's the title of, of the sermon today, the sympathetic high priest. And so we're going to, I'm going to read Hebrews 4 and then we're going to dive in together. So I'm going to read from verse 14 and just three verses for us today. It says this in Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God. When I first became a Christian, I remember I couldn't keep up with all the different names that were given to Jesus in the Bible. It was like he had, depending how people knew him, it's like they called him a different name. You know, many would say they were kind of like nicknames. You know, you, you could say that I, I, I love nicknames. I had quite a few growing up, actually. Uh, Macca, the most popular, but I had Mini Mac, Big Mac, uh, Mac Attack, McNamara, Mac Banana, loads. People, kind of whole versions of, of my name. And sometimes I used to think, well, Jesus had a lot of nicknames too. You kind of, when you read the scriptures, you, some called him Jesus, some called him Christ, some called him Lord, some called him Rabbi, some teacher, son of man, son of God, son of David, high priest, all these different kind of names that would be attributed to Jesus. And what you start to realise is a bit like nicknames. Usually if you give someone a nickname or if you've got a nickname yourself, often there is some sort of story or kind of history behind it, a reason why you've got that name or, or, or a story to the first person who called you it and things like that. And, and in fact, all of the names and titles that, that Jesus has, 
There's stories behind him. There's reasons why he's called that. There's a backdrop. There's a history. And so what we're going to do today is, is look at this particular name that we've read about in this passage today. The writer of Hebrews calls Jesus a high priest. And so we're going to look at, well, what does this name mean? What does it mean for Jesus? What is, what's the history of it? What does it mean about who he is and what he's done? But also, what does it mean to, for us about how we relate with him? And so we're going to look at these three verses that we've read and we're going to look at this title of what does it mean that Jesus is a high priest and what does it mean for us? And so the first verse, it says that, it says in, in verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. To understand the title, the name high priest, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel, uh, they would have priests. And amongst the priests, there would be selected what they would have called a high priest. He would have almost been kind of overseeing all of the priests. He would have been, um, it would have been hereditary. They would have come from the line of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. Okay, So there would be a high priest. And, and in many ways, they, the high priest would, would act to the people of Israel as like a representative before God. He would represent the people of God before God. To kind of help us, I guess, understand that, I always think the closest that we get to having someone who represents us as a people would be in any sporting event. And can you believe it's been 10 years already since we, uh, we had the Olympics here in London, London 2012. What an amazing uh, summer that was. I'm sure you can remember it. It was just kind of, it was just fever pitch throughout the kind of city and the nation. It was amazing. And I, I got loads of highlights from it. But I think that the, probably one of the standout moments, if not the standout moment for me, was when Mo Farah wins the 5,000 meters. He'd already won the 10,000 meter and, um, and there was quite a lot of anticipation. Could he do the double? It was a really competitive field. But you, you kind of had this race and they were literally neck and neck until like the last 200 metres and it's basically a sprint finish. And then Mo Farah does that amazing thing where he just kind of kicks on amongst everyone else. And, and he bursts through and he does the, the big M and it's kind of gone down in history. I remember sitting in the front room of my mum and dad's house watching it. We were just going mental, couldn't believe it. Because in that moment, Mo Farah represented the entire nation. In fact, all of the nation, Great Britain, he represented Great Britain. He won the race, yet we all celebrated. We all won, we all got the gold medal, but it was one man who did it. He was the representative. And in the same way, that's how it worked, that they would look to the high priest that would, uh, Mo Farah represented Great Britain before the Olympic panel, so to speak. The high priest represented uh, the people of Israel before God. And one of the main things that he would have to do uh, in that time, I guess one of his chief tasks would come on what was called the Day of Atonement. On, on, there'll be one day, once a year, when the high priest who was selected would have to go into the temple of God. That was where God's presence dwelt. And he would have to go into the most holy place of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he would go and he would take a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice for himself and for all of the people to deal with the sins, the wrongdoings of all of, the God, of God's people for the entire year that's just gone. So he would go and, and he would go into what was called the mercy seat of God and having just sacrificed animals, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And on that occasion, it meant that all of the wrongdoings, all of the sins of all of the people would be dealt with. They would be forgiven, they'd be atoned for. 
is the language. And you can read a lot about it in Leviticus 16 if you, kind of, you can kind of read all the different details of the things they had to do. And that was, if you like, the chief kind of task of the high priest. And he would, um, and so in the same way that he represented the people then, the title of the Hebrew, the Hebrew is giving that title to Jesus. And in the same way that the high priest represented the people, he's saying Jesus represents us. In the Old Testament, the priest would take uh, the blood of, it would, it, they would sacrifice uh, pigeons, bulls, goats, rams, a whole load of animals, and they would go and lay it at the altar. But Jesus himself, in fact, he lays himself down at the altar. He himself becomes the high priest, but also the sacrifice. He's the one who kind of made uh, an atonement for all of our sins, for all of the people. See, the blood of animals wouldn't have been enough to deal with the sins of all people for all nations, for all time. And so Jesus himself is referred to as he's like this great high priest, not just a high priest, he's the great high priest, the, the final high priest, the one who has dealt with things once and for all in, doing, in dealing with an atonement for all of us. And so in that moment, Jesus deals with, with the sins, not just for that year, because in those days, the high priest, he'd go in, he'd, he'd, he'd kind of deal with the sin, but then he comes out. Well, if you sin the next day, you think, oh no, I've, I've sinned again. It's all right, next year, we'll, we'll get that dealt with. That's not the way it worked with Jesus. He, he was, people talk about once and for all. He was the, the sacrifice he's made for all time, forever and ever. It's not an annual thing. He's done it once and for all. And that's what the verse talks about. He says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. To say he's passed through the heavens means Jesus isn't dead in the grave. He's alive, he's risen, ascended, and he's seated in the heavenly places. He's alive and well, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for us even now. He is still atoning for us, making sure that our sin has been dealt with once and for all. And so he is a great high priest. And he acts, in, in many ways you could say Jesus is like a go-between, between us and the Father in the way that the high priest, it was a go-between. We really kind of didn't have that access, but Jesus has dealt with that. He's, he's the great go-between between us and God. And, and so the writer starts off by saying, since we've got this great high priest, Jesus, who's laid himself down, who's been a sacrifice for many, who's been a great, who's dealt with your sin once and for all, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. It's another way of saying, of your other versions say, hold fast to your faith. Hold on to faith. You've got this faith. You've got this confession. You've got this trust in God. Hold on to it. Why? Because you've got this great high priest who's dealt with all the wrong things you've ever done. So you can hold on because Jesus is in heaven, interceding, praying, fighting for you on your behalf. And so we've got this great high priest. But what I love about these verses is that in the next verse, kind of, the writer takes us kind of down another layer into the sort of high priest that he really is. Because you sort of got this impression of this great high priest seated in heaven, kind of passed through the heavens, oh, okay. But then he tells us, not only is he like that, he says, but, but we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It begins just to paint us this picture of, of, of what Jesus is like. The writer of the Hebrews is, is, is in many ways, he's trying to take us by the hand and, 
and kind of walk us and draw us into the very heart of Christ, to his nature, to, to what, he's like, what his attitude is towards us. That he's someone who wants to stand in, in solidarity with his people. He, you see, one of the things that this passage is saying is he can sympathise with us. In other ways, it, when, we're, when, when we have pain, when we know pain, Jesus knows pain. When we're suffering, no, he's not suffering. He, he suffers with us in a way. He kind, of, he, he, he kind of knows what it is. We don't have a high priest who's distant, who's unable to understand anything that we've gone through, but we, we have one who, who's walked these paths, who's walked this earth, who was tempted in every way. It's, it's the difference, if you like, people often talk about this, the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? When you, often there's someone that might have gone through a very difficult circumstance, and, 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 but you've never been through it. You, you can kind of, you have to be careful what you say. You sit down and you say to them, oh yeah, I, you know, I know how it must feel. They think, no, you don't know how it feels actually. You know, you, but, but sometimes we empathise with people. I can imagine that's really difficult. I'm really sorry you're going through that but maybe the particular situation I've gone through, we don't really understand it. We've never walked through it. That's, you know, but, but that's not Jesus. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He, he knows what it is we've walked through. He knows the, the wrestles of temptation. In fact, Dane Ortland, who, who wrote the book, a fantastic quote on this that I just want to read to us because talking about Jesus being a sympathetic high priest, he says this. He says, he came as a normal man to normal men. He knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. And had he lived today, every last Twitter or Facebook friend or follower would have unfriended him when he turned 33. You see, that the writer is trying to remind us we, we have a God who knows, who understands, who's walked through it. He's, there's solidarity in it. In many ways, Jesus, he stands with us. The Bible says that, doesn't it? That it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In our grief, in our, in our difficulty, in our temptation, in our pain, Jesus stands with us. And that's quite a popular phrase these days. You know, it's quite a pop, you know, often people, people say that when people go through hardship, when people go through difficulty, you'll often hear people say, you know, we're standing with you. And, um, you know, I've probably said that myself to people, we're standing with you. And what it means in many ways is there's solidarity. We're on your team. We, we want to support you. We want to encourage you. We want, we, we, we're standing with you. You're not alone in this situation. I might not even understand the situation, but I'm standing with you. But when Jesus kind of says that, he means that it's kind of in, in, in many different ways. It's the kind of real sense of the word. He's saying, no, I'm with you in that I've, I've, I've walked this path. I've been through that situation. And he kind of, he, he feels it. In many ways, in fact, just recently, there was um, someone um, at the Downham site who walking through uh, cancer in real faith, real encouragement, um, you know, uh, but, but difficult. And there was another lady um, who'd had cancer, and in fact is in remission, kind of just a real amazing God really kind of brought her through, uh, through her treatment. And there was one particular Sunday where she'd heard the news, and, and, and she said during the Sunday, she just kept crying. And we were kind of chatting after service, she said, oh, my, my, I just know what they must be feeling, I've, I've, I've been through it. 
and my heart just goes out to them. I'm just finding, you know, just kind of real sympathy in a way that I wouldn't understand. I've not walked through that, but this other lady, she goes, no, I've, I know how they must be feeling. I can remember when I received my diagnosis and it just brought her to tears because there's a real understanding. There's a kind of, and she went and she stands and prays and holds the hand and prays with him. It's powerful. And you think, no, that's the image you get that Christ, he, he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to walk alone. He knows what it is to go through difficulty and strife and pain and hardship. And so he's a high priest who's not kind of high and lofty away from us, but he's one who says, no, I, I come and stand with you. And so maybe today you, you're, you're in that sort of season. You're going through that kind of, things are just difficult. Maybe you're just in the face of sin. Maybe you're just feeling like, oh, I'm, just, I'm feeling so tempted all the time. The Bible says, Jesus knows. He comes and stands alongside us. He comes, but the, the thing that we must take note of, what it says about Christ, is that in the face of all of that suffering, in the face of all temptation, the Bible says, yet he was still without sin. You see, not one of us can say that. No one watching this, no, none of us can say, you know what? In the storms of life, in the difficulty of life, in, in through temptation, I'm without sin. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. But the Bible makes it really clear. In fact, later on in Hebrews 7, verse 26, talking of Jesus, uh, it says about him, he says, he's holy, innocent, unsustained, separated from sinners, insofar as that he's, he's never sinned. And that is a real foundation. C.S. Lewis, an author, talks about how um, kind of an image of a man walking through a storm. Think of a man or woman walking through a wind coming against them. In the end, they just feel like they can't walk against the wind anymore and they just sit down. It's like giving in to temptation. And the image you get of Jesus is that he, could, he walked against the wind, but he never sat down. In fact, we didn't know if the wind, sometimes the wind gets even stronger. We've sat down before the full force of it came, not Jesus. He felt the full force of the wind. He felt the full face uh, of, of temptation. He, 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 the full brunt of sin came for him. He felt the full tug of sin, yet he never surrendered it, never got a hold of him. He never sinned. He never gave in. And that is foundational to us because it's because of his sinlessness that he's able to, if you like, in, in, he can reach into the dark hole of our sinfulness and pull us out. The rest of us, we're like crabs in a barrel. All of us have sinned in many ways. You kind of, and it's funny because you see it in culture and society, many, you know, that because we've all sinned, people are trying to talk about whose sins are worse than others. It's like crabs in a barrel pulling others down. Look how bad they are. Look how bad they are. Look how bad they are. It's kind of a way to almost, you, you're clawing above others to kind of get yourself on the top. But in the end, none of us can get out of the barrel. None of us are sinless. It's only Jesus who can reach in and pull us out of the darkness. His sinlessness is our salvation because he was without sin. It's the, the foundation of the passage. I think Psalm 40 talks about how he, he reaches us out of the mud and mire and he sets our feet on a rock. That he's saved us, he's redeemed us, that he's bared our burdens. But not only is he happy just to reach out and pull us out and kind of stay from a distance, he's happy to step in and, and if you like, co-suffer with us. It's the thing you must understand about Jesus. He, he, he doesn't give us a pep talk. When we're going through trials and temptations and difficulty, he's not this God who gives us a pep talk from a distance without any true understanding. Sometimes you get the impression of, of some of the criticisms of maybe those that are in, in high positions. They think they don't really know what it's like on the ground. They can come and say, oh yeah, keep going. You don't know what it's really like. 
It's not Jesus. He knows. He, he's, he's, he's walked out of love. Christ sent his son into the world to save us and redeem us. And he walked the earth as we did. He faced the battles that we face. He faced the temptations that you and I do, yet came out clean and pure and sinless. And has rescued us and saved us in that. that because he lived this perfect holy life, he's, he's rescued us. He's, he's, he's dealt with all of our wrongdoings. He's a great high priest who's sympathetic to us. He's walked the path yet is without sin. And then again, what I love about this passage is it takes us one layer deeper. That because we have a great high priest who's sympathetic to us, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and me? Where, how do we stand before God? Well, this is what it says in verse 16. It says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. You're going through a difficult time today. Maybe, you, maybe, you've, you've, maybe you've just lived in reality of your own sin. Maybe you're going through suffering. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. You think, as you approach God today, what are you met with? A wagon finger? A throne of judgment? A throne of telling off and don't do this and don't do that? And the Bible says you're met with a throne of grace where you find mercy and help in your time of need. And I want to close with this because... It reminds me, I guess, maybe an illustration to help us understand what, about when I was at school, in my school days. In my school, there were three playgrounds. You had the, the, the lower, the middle, and the top playground. And on the top playground, there was a cage. It kind of had a few football courts in it. And it was one of those things where the cage was open to all year groups. Whoever you are, you can come to the cage. But everyone knew it was really for the year 11s. It was like, unless you wanted to go up and get yourself in a bit of bother, you didn't go up to that cage. But when I was in year seven, uh, I was only probably about this big, I haven't grown much, but I thought much of myself and I got a brand new football for my brother, one of those Champions League ones with the stars on it. And so I said to my mates, now hold on a minute, I'm going to play in the cage. They've got good goals in the cage. My mate's like, no, no, Joe, the year 11s are up there. I said, I forget the year 11s. We're going to the cage. So we go up, we march up to the cage and uh, literally, no sooner I'd stepped a foot or two in the cage, one lad called James Cracknell, I hope you're not watching. Well, I hope you are watching. He comes and he hits the ball from underneath my arm. I'm holding it like this. The ball hits my chin. I bite my lip. My lip starts bleeding. He pushes me back, grabs the ball and run off. And so I do what any kind of tough kid from South East London in year seven would do. I cried. And uh, I, I ran down the hill to the lower playground and I got my older brother. Sean, who was in year 13, upper sixth form. I got him and I also got a few of his mates. And they come marching up the hall. I'm crying, Sean, he took my ball. And so they come marching up the hill. And uh, I'll never forget James's face when he sees my brother. Oh, it was brilliant. He, he was full of fear. And um, my brother walks up to him. He, he grabs him sort of around the shirt and they exchange a few kind of, you know, this and that. You know, so I get the ball back, right? Well, you can imagine the next day. I strutted up to that cage full of confidence and we played a great game. I felt like I was king of the playground and we had a great game of football. Now what's amazing is that I could approach that cage with real confidence. It had nothing to do with who I was, nothing to do with what I'd done, nothing to do with any achievements or battles that I'd won. It was everything to do with who my brother was, everything to do with what he had done, with the victory in the battle that he had won over James. And friends, it's the same way with you and I. Because of who Jesus Christ is, because of the battle that he's won over sin and darkness and the devil and death, because of who he is, our big brother, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. 
Not worrying about our own performance, not worrying, saying, oh no, I should have done this and that. Say, no, thank God that because of Jesus Christ, because of my great high priest, the sympathetic one, I can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and I can find mercy and help in my time of need. I want to close by saying this, that the Christian life begins with forgiveness and reconciliation, a moment of repentance and, and this kind of homecoming of just, oh, I'm drawn near to God, I've been forgiven, I've, I've turned away from my sin. But as we continue through the Christian life, we have to remember we're not spared from the difficulties of this life. We don't escape pain and stress and difficulty and suffering and hardships and trials and temptation. Those things come in the Christian life just as much as anybody else. But what we do know, in the midst of all of those things, we have a great high priest who's sympathetic towards us, who stands with us, who loves us and is for us. And in the midst of all of it, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, whenever we come, we can approach God's throne knowing that it's a throne of grace, that he wants to receive us, and that in return we can receive mercy and help in our time of need. Let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for the, the, the battle that he won, the victory that he won over sin and death and the devil. And that he has risen to glory and that he is our great high priest. And I want to pray for all of us. May we know that high priest again today. May we know the, the sympathetic high priest who loves us and is for us. And as we approach your throne of grace, Lord, even now, I particularly pray for those of us who we need mercy. We need help. We need your grace. Lord, may we find it in abundance because it's there for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.